Part three of Ghosts and Family Legends, a volume for Christmas by Catherine Crow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part three, round the fire, third evening. I don't know that I could tell you anything interesting in the way of ghost stories. I have never attended to them, though I have heard a great many, said Colonel C., but I can tell you an extraordinary circumstance which may, perhaps, be considered of a spiritual nature, and which I can myself vouch for the truth of. My father, when I was young, resided in the south of England. I shall not give the name of the place nor of the people immediately concerned if these stories are to be published, because, for anything I know, some persons may survive to whom the publication might give pain. I lived there with him and my mother and sisters. Our house was on the road between two large towns, situated about eight miles distant from each other, and though we had a little ground and a short avenue in front, we were not more than half a quarter of a mile from the highway. When all was still, we could distinctly hear the carts and carriages as they passed, and even distinguish by the sound of the wheels what kind of vehicle it was. There was a carrier that plied between these two towns, whom I will call Healy, and as everything we used we had from B, he was generally at our house three or four times a week. In short, he did our marketings in a great degree, my mother giving him an order, as he passed, for what he was to bring back and many a time Healy has smuggled a novel from the circulating library for my sisters, or done little commissions for me that I could not so well manage for myself. All this made him a popular character with us, for he was very obliging, but for all that he did not bear the best of characters. It was his interest to be well with us, and the gentry in general, who were his customers, and he understood that too well to incur our ill-will but by his equals and inferiors he was looked upon with a less favorable eye. They had nothing very positive to allege against him, but they thought him a hard, griping, greedy man, who was honest in his dealings with us because the slightest suspicion would have ruined his trade, but who would take an advantage when he thought no possible damage to himself could accrue from it. He was about forty years of age, tall, with a long face, prominent nose, and dark complexion. His shoulders were round, but his frame was wiry, and he was reputed very strong. One evening, between thirty and forty years ago, towards the beginning of winter, we were expecting Healy. My mother was solicitous about some provisions she had ordered for an approaching dinner-party, and I was very anxious for the arrival of a cricket-bat that I wanted for use the day after the next. Of course, long before the time he usually arrived, I was looking out for him, and fancying him late, I said, I wondered Healy was not come. Upon which my father looked at his watch, and found that it wanted full half an hour of his time, which was nine o'clock, sometimes indeed later, but never earlier. It was then exactly half-past eight and before my father had returned his watch into his pocket, one of my sisters exclaimed, "'Here he is!' and we heard the wheels coming up the avenue. We should have heard him before, but two of my sisters were practicing a duet, which was to be produced at the approaching festivity, and drowned the sound. Thereupon I and my mother left the room and went towards the back door, where Healy had just alighted, and was bringing sundry packages into the kitchen. "'Have you got my bat, Healy?' said I. 
No, sir, he replied, there wasn't one in the whole town the size you wanted, but I'll bring you one from S as I pass tomorrow. I know they've got em there. I believe that's all, ma'am, he added, addressing my mother. She said she believed it was, and was going to pay him his week's account, which she had asked for, but he hurried out, saying, Another time, if you please, ma'am, I'm rather late tonight and he was in his cart and away before I had time to give him some directions in regard to the bath. "'What a hurry he's in,' I said, and it wants almost twenty minutes to nine now. "'I suppose he has a great many places to stop at,' said my mother. "'If he don't get all his parcels delivered before people are gone to bed, he gets into trouble sometimes. He's a very punctual fellow, certainly.' We returned to the dining-room and resumed our occupations, and about half an hour afterwards, happening to be all silent at the moment, we heard a pair of light wheels and a brisk trotting-horse passing in the road. "'That's Farmer Gould's mare, I'm sure,' said I. "'What a famous trotter she is!' "'Yes,' said my father. "'I wish he'd part with her. I made him an offer the other day. I should like her for my buggy.' "'And what did he say? Won't he sell her?' He said nothing. He only laughed and shook his fat sides. "'Money is no object to him,' said my mother. "'He won't part with her unless he gets another he likes better.' We breakfasted at nine o'clock, and I was getting up and about half-dressed when one of my sisters burst into my room crying. "'La, Fred, such a shocking thing has happened. Poor Farmer Gould was found dead in the road this morning. They think his horse ran away, for it's not to be found, and the chaise was upset and lying on its side. How lucky Papa did not get the mare! Who says so? said I. The postman, she answered. He saw some laborers standing round something in the road, and when he came up to them he found it was the chaise, and poor Farmer Gould quite dead beside it. When I got downstairs I found the whole house occupied with the subject of this sad accident, all lamenting the good man, who was a general favorite, and agreeing that for so heavy a person a two-wheeled carriage was very dangerous, as a fall was almost sure to be fatal. My father said when he had finished his letters and papers he would walk up to the farm and see if he could be of any use to poor Mrs. Gould. I, with the curiosity of fifteen, begged to go with him, and my mother improved the occasion by giving the governor a serious lecture about his love for high-trotting horses and buggies. I expected Healy with my bat about eleven o'clock, as he had nothing else to bring. I knew he wouldn't come up the avenue, but leave it at a cottage near our gate, and wishing to learn if he'd heard any particulars about the accident, I walked down to meet him when the hour approached. Presently I saw him coming, sitting in front of his cart. "'Well, Healy,' I said, "'isn't this a shocking thing about poor Farmer Gould? You've heard he was found dead in the road this morning?' "'Yes, sir. The mare ran away and pitched him out upon his head. I can't say as ever I liked her myself, but I've got your bat, Master Frederick, a nice un too. I wouldn't come away this morning till I got it. I thanked him, and he drove on, as if he had no time to lose in gossip, while I was untying the string of my parcel. By the time my father and I reached Gould's farm, the doctor had arrived from B, and we heard he was examining the body in the parlor, where it had been laid by the laborers who found it. The chaise, too, was standing near the door, just as it had been wheeled up, 
and the mare, they told us, had been found in a neighboring field, with the harness hanging about her and unhurt, except on the forehead where she appeared to have had a violent blow. The farm men, standing about, said that she had no doubt taken her head and ran foul of something, and so pitched out Mr. Gould and overturned the chaise, which seemed likely enough. My father said he should like to see Mr. Wills, the surgeon, so we stood about outside till he came. When he did, he looked very grave, as indeed befitted the occasion, but in answer to my father's inquiries, he said that he could give no decided opinion of the cause of death till he had investigated the case further, and then he proceeded to examine the chaise, and next the horse. He then walked with us down to the spot where the thing had happened, and narrowly surveyed the ground, but he was very uncommunicative, which, as we knew him well, rather surprised us. He hurried away, saying that he must prepare for the inquest on the following day. My father went to the inquest, and I should have liked to go too, but I was engaged to play a match at cricket with a few of my young neighbors. However, I was home first, for the inquest lasted a long time, and took a very unexpected turn. It appeared that Mr. Wills, who was by marriage a connection of Gould's wife, had suspected on the first examination of the body that the farmer had not come fairly by his end. It so happened that Gould had dined with him the last day he was at B, and had mentioned to him that he had at last got that seventy pounds that he was afraid he should never see, alluding to some money that had been long owing to him. And as he spoke he drew from his pocket a bundle of notes, some of which appeared to be of the Bank of England, and some of country banks. As soon, therefore, as Wills had arrived at certain conclusions, he inquired of Mrs. Gould if she had found his money safe. In her grief and surprise it had not occurred to her to search, and indeed she was not aware of his having any sum of importance about him. They proceeded immediately to examine his pockets, but no notes were there. A few shillings, a silver watch, and some unconsidered trifles were all that was found about him. Mr. Wills made inquiries at the bankers and others at B, and by the time the inquest sat he was prepared to say that there was every reason to think that Mr. Gould had had his money in his waistcoat pocket, where he had seen him deposit it at the time he left to return home. This presented quite a new view of the case to the coroner, who had come there without the slightest suspicion of anything beyond an accident. The laborers were examined as to the attitude in which they had discovered the body, which they all agreed was lying on its face, and, indeed, there were some stains from the dirt of the road which testified to this being the case. Yet, according to Mr. Wills, death had been occasioned by a terrible blow on the back of the head, which had fractured the skull, and which, in his opinion, was inflicted by a heavy bludgeon. The man's hair was very thick behind, but on dividing it a wound was visible, from which a small quantity of blood had oozed and dried up. After a long investigation, the inquest was adjourned for a few days, in order that further evidence might be collected. We were all much excited about this affair. It formed the staple of conversation at our dinner party, and various were the conjectures formed as to who was the criminal, if criminal there were. 
for some thought it possible that Gould had fallen on his back in the first instance, and then got upon his legs and fallen a second time on his face. But Mr. Wills was confident the death wound was not the result of a fall, and besides, where was the money? Then all agreed that if he had been robbed, it was by no ordinary thief. It must have been by someone who knew the sum he had in his pocket, and who did not care for the loose silver and the watch. No doubt, said my father, they will find out if anybody was present when the money was paid to him, or he may have told somebody of it, as he told Wills. We had so many things provided for the party that for two or three days we wanted nothing of Healy and did not see him. But the servants, having mentioned that they wanted soap for the next week's washing, my mother sent a note to the cottage, where he always stopped to inquire for orders, desiring him to bring some on his return, and also a barrel of beer for the use of the kitchen. When I heard the cart coming up the avenue, I went to the back door to have a little gossip. "'Well, Healy,' said I, as he rolled in the barrel of beer, "'have you heard any news?' "'No, sir,' said he. "'Nothing about Farmer Gould?' I asked. "'No, sir, nothing. Shall I put the beer in the cellar?' he inquired. This question being answered, I said, "'Did you meet anybody on the road that night?' "'Lord, sir, I meet loads of people, as I never take any notice of. I've enough to do to mind my own business.' "'You couldn't have been far off when he was attacked, for you know Mr. Wills says he's been killed by a blow on the back of the head, don't you?' "'Well, sir, I've heard so. But how should he know? He wasn't there, I suppose. Anything else wanted, sir?' "'I believe not, Healy,' I said, and he got into his cart and drove away while I went back to the drawing-room. "'What does Healy say?' asked my father. "'Has he heard anything new about this affair?' "'No, he says he hasn't, but he said very little and seemed rather sulky, I thought. "'By the by, he couldn't have been far off when the thing happened, "'for he had only been gone half an hour when we recognized the step of poor Gould's mare, I recollect, "'and she'd soon overtake him. "'So I told him, and I asked him if he had met anybody on the road that night, "'but he said he'd plenty to do to mind his own business.' My father, who was reading the paper at the time, looked up at me over his spectacles, and then he fell into a reverie that lasted some minutes, but he said nothing. My mother observed that she thought Healy ought to be summoned as a witness, and my father rejoined that no doubt he'd be examined. On the following day the inquest was resumed. My father went early and had some private conversation with Mr. Wills, and I waited outside amongst the assembled crowd, listening to their speculations and conjectures. Presently the coroner arrived, and I went in with him and heard the whole of the evidence. That of Mr. Wills and the laborers who found the body was the same as before. Then, as my father had conjectured, Healy was called. His face was familiar to everybody in the room, and there was not one, I should think, who was not struck with the singularly sulky, dogged expression his features had assumed. There was no manifest reason for it, for he was only summoned like other witnesses, and no breath of suspicion had been cast upon him, at least as far as we had heard. But he evidently came in a spirit of resistance, and wound up for self-defense." He declared that he had not overtaken Mr. Gould on the night in question, and did not know he was on the road, nor did he hear anything of what had happened till the next morning. 
He believed he had met some tramps on the road that night, two men and a woman, but he had not particularly noticed them, and he did not recollect meeting anybody else. He had first heard of the accident at a shop where he had gone to buy a bat for Master C. When he said this he looked up at me, and our eyes met. I have often thought of that look since. The next witness was Mr. F., who had paid Gould the seventy pounds in notes, and then a Mr. H. B., a solicitor, came forward and volunteered the following evidence, which he said he should have given before, but that he had left home on the afternoon preceding this unfortunate business, and had only returned yesterday. He was acquainted with Gould, and had met him at the door of the bank at B., as he himself was on his way to the coach that was starting for E. Gould spoke to him, and said he had just got that seventy pounds, and when he said so, he clapped his hand on his pocket, implying it was there. He said, I came to pay it in here, but I see they're shut, and it does not signify. I shall have to pay away a good deal of it next week. This was all that passed, as I told him I must be off, for I should lose the coach. Upon this he was asked if anybody else had been present when Gould made this communication. He answered that people had been passing to and fro, but he could not say whether they heard it. There was one person who he thought might, though he could not affirm that he did, and that was Healy, the carrier, who was standing at the door of the tanner's shop, which is next to the bank and examining some cricket bats that he had in his hand. Gould had spoken loud, as was his wont. I saw Mr. Wills and my father exchange looks when this evidence was given, and then for the first time the question occurred to me, could Healy be the murderer? I could hardly entertain the suspicion. It is so difficult to believe such a thing of a person one is having constant intercourse with. Healy was recalled and asked if he remembered seeing Mr. Gould and the lawyer together on that day. He declared he did not. The harness was afterwards produced, and it appeared that the traces had been cut, which was a strong confirmation of the worst suspicions. The inquest was once more adjourned, and Healy plied his trade as usual for the next two days, though everybody had a strange feeling towards him, and he retained his dogged, sulky look. On the third night we missed him. We had expected a parcel from B, but he did not come, and the next day we heard he had been arrested on suspicion of being the murderer of Mr. Gould. A gentleman's servant, who had been out without leave to some festivity at B, and had come home and got in at the pantry window without being discovered, at last came forward and said that as he was going to the rendezvous, he had seen a cart, which he believed to be Healy's, though it was very dark, drawn right across the road. The horse was out of the shafts and tied to a gate, for he nearly ran against him. He did not see any person with a cart, but the driver might be behind it. It was just where there are some large trees overhanging the road, which made it darker than in other parts, and a person driving would not see the obstruction till he was on it. He himself, thinking it was Healy, slipped quietly by, for he did not want to be recognized, as the carrier often came to his master's, and might have betrayed him. He met a one-horse carriage about a couple of miles further on. The horse was trotting pretty fast. He thought it was Mr. Gould, but he could not positively say, as the night was dark. 
The spot described was precisely where Mr. Gould's body was found, and the man added that it struck him when he met the gig that if the cart had not moved out of the way there would be an accident, and he should have warned the driver to look out if he had not been upon a lark himself. You may imagine the sensation created by this allegation in the neighborhood, where the carrier was so well known. Till the spring assizes at E, where he was to be tried, it furnished the staple of conversation, and every fresh bit of evidence, for or against him, was eagerly repeated and canvassed. My father was summoned as a witness to the hour at which Healy had been at our house that night, and also to the recognizing the foot of Mr. Gould's mare. The evidence was entirely circumstantial, as nobody had witnessed the murder, though murder there certainly had been, nor was there anybody else to whom suspicion could attach. As for the tramps Healy said he had met, no trace of them could be found, nor did any one appear to have seen such a party. When all the evidence had been heard, my father said he felt considerable doubt what the verdict would be, and he really believed the jury were greatly perplexed. But when Healy stood up and in the most solemn manner said, I am innocent, my lord, I call God to witness, I am innocent. May this right arm wither if I murdered the man. So great an impression was made on the court that, added to the prisoner's previous good character, everybody saw he would be acquitted. He was. Healy went forth a free man, and we were all too glad to believe in his innocence to dispute the justice of the verdict but, lo, the hand of the Lord was on him. He had called upon God to bear witness to his words, and he did. In three days from that time Richard Healy's stalwart right arm was withered. The muscles shrunk, the skin dried up, and it looked like the limb of a mummy. Though a voice from heaven testified against him, he could not be arraigned again for the same crime, and he remained at liberty. He attempted for a short time to carry on his business, but people ceased to employ him, and his feeble arm could no longer lift the boxes and hampers with which his cart was wont to be loaded. He went about, avoided by every one but his own immediate connections. I often met him, but he never looked at me in the face. Indeed, he rarely, if ever, raised his eyes. His round shoulders grew rounder till he came to stoop like an old man. He seemed to move under a heavy burden that weighed him to the earth. After an interval, however, he bought some property, and in his old age, for he survived his trial several years, he was in prosperous circumstances, but everybody said, where did he get the money? We were all deeply interested in this singular story, and in reference to the withered arm, Colonel C. said that he should certainly not have believed it had he not seen it himself. I think, said I, that it was not so difficult to account for the phenomenon as at first appears. Had he been innocent, the solemn adjuration he uttered in court would have been justifiable in the eyes of God and man, and would have occasioned him no concern afterwards. But he was guilty. He had called upon God to bear witness to a lie, and doubtless the consciousness of this sacrilegious appeal filled him with horror and alarm. He would tremble lest his prayer should be heard and the curse fall upon him. These terrors would direct all his thoughts to his arm and produce the very thing he feared, 
for Sir Henry Holland asserts that the mind is capable of acting upon the body to such a degree as sometimes to create disease in a particular part on which the attention is too intently fixed. End of Part 3